right, Mike. So, yeah, we are back again for part two of our Getting Started with Thousand Suns series. Yes, sir. It's been a bit of a busy week for the both of us. I'm glad we have the time to do part two of this. Of course. So at this point, what we've done, if you missed part one, uh, we have um, basically gone over the initial concepts of building your list, uh, what units to basically think about, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, as well as, as how to start Thousand Suns in general. What are the good purchases to pick up early on? Exactly. So if you haven't had a chance to catch up through that episode, um, head over to SoundCloud or iTunes and check out that previous episode. Um, it should be the one that came right before this one. Uh, and then you can jump into this one. So yeah. so today we're going to go through some of, okay, we have our army. We've built up to whatever points level we feel is appropriate. So now what do you do with it? Sort of the, all the steps to go into the pregame, how, what choices to make, what benefits you have over other armies, things like that. So just to, <clears throat> I'm sure all of you already know but uh being a warrior prospero gives you a couple of benefits um the two of which that we share with all other chaos base brain armies um the death to the false emperor which is a rule that a lot of people forget um that actually makes close combat units much more potent than you might uh necessarily think on paper um effectively each time you roll a six plus to hit um, you generate an extra attack. Um, that means if you have um, bonus plus ones from like prescience or a um, Zengor Shaman, uh, you could potentially generate uh, bonus attacks on a four plus, which is a massive benefit. Yeah. Um, and then demonic ritual, we can summon demons. Uh, this is sort of a of niche benefit, mostly because you have to pay uh, points out of your list to have points to summon demons with. But if you don't know what you're going to slot in, you know, it allows you a little flexibility. And uh, then the what's unique to Thousand Suns, uh, two benefits. Uh, the one's not really unique, just to give a fancy name to it. Um, and the first one's actually a, bit, a little understated for how potent it is, because you wouldn't think it'd be powerful. But uh, the Brotherhood of Sorcerers army rule uh, adds six to the range of psychic powers, which... <clears throat> on paper doesn't seem very long however a lot of the powers out of the well hereticus discipline in particular uh the the, the disciple of change and discipline of zinch are actually have a fairly short range out of the box but adding six to that means that suddenly you can just sort of contend with armies a little better that you wouldn't be able to normally reach yeah, I think a really good example of that is uh, everybody's favorite power, Warp Time, uh, from the Dark Reticus tree, which I think has a three-inch starting range. And with Thousand Suns, that goes up to nine inches, uh, which is incredible on the field because now you have a lot more room to maneuver to get there. So if, you're, if the guys you want to Warp Time are, say, way far away, you still have the ability to advance your sorcerer over and get within nine versus having to get within three. Yeah, the other two standout powers and that benefit from that are Death Hex and Gift of Chaos. <clears throat> but we'll uh, get into those here in a minute. Uh, the other ability that we get that every army gets pretty much is the Thousand Suns troop choices are objective secured. 
um, to use the old term. Um, effectively, if they're on an objective and the, for whatever reason, your opponent is, does not have a rule that makes them objective secured, your thousands on the troops will claim the objective, um, even if they have more guys on it. Otherwise, that actually, it like normal. That actually happens a lot more than you would think because you yeah. you can put your troops, and pretty much at this point, everybody everybody's uh, troops are objective secure. Yeah. But the real benefit of that is when you're playing something maybe like knights or you play an army where they have their elites uh, or even, I think, uh, HQ units as well. Um, you know, things that are just like, let's take, for instance, enemy demon princes or something like that where he's just sitting on an objective. Your space marines or your rubric marines or cultists or whatever, even Zangors, can get in there and hold that objective. Um, Zangors are actually really cool with it because you're usually very offensive with them, uh, as in you send them into attack rather than rubric marines being a little bit more defensive. And when you send the Zangors in, you can actually put them into the backfield against something like, say, um, that guard player you play against that likes to put his mortar squads and whatever in the very back. Mm. If you get your Zangors back there, not only will they mow mow through them if you don't you still in a lot of scenarios can start getting advantages in the game by holding that objective or at least challenging it from them um so that's no longer just a hey auto point gain or an auto gain for them yeah. uh, on that objective so just things to keep in mind knowing your rules is very important remember knowledge is power and that's why we're doing these videos well podcasts you know, that one thing. Anyways, Maybe you're very good at visualizing. I am extremely good at visualizing. I hope nobody else is, otherwise you uh, might not like what you see. Anyways, um, on to the Warlord's rates. Uh, so, I guess we'll start off with the named characters. So, named characters in 40k tend to have Warlord traits that are sort of represent things that are sort of an iconic aspect of them or represent some, some maybe the fluffy choice not necessarily always the best choice and so you have to keep that in mind um when you're picking your warlords and your named characters uh so Aramon has the otherworldly prescience ability which improves his invuln save by one which is actually pretty potent, um, all things considered. He comes with a four-up base, so with that, he actually hit Rise Rock and a three-up invuln save, um, which is as good as a Storm Shield. It's actually the only one unit in the entire game has better than that, and it's a squishy Dark Eldar character who can lose it if he rolls bad. Whereas, so... Hmm? So it's interesting that you start with Aramon there and his warlord trait. Um, I don't know if it's typical for people to make Aramon their warlord. Um, and might kind of dovetail into the other warlord traits that are there because when you make your character, you have to go, or you make Aramon that warlord, you have to go with that trait. Correct. So you're not getting, by giving him a three-up invuln, you're not exactly getting a lot of benefit out of that because if you think about it, you really don't want to have Aramon in close combat. There's most of the things in the game 
where that would really help. Um, that ends up not being all that great. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is there are other um, ones like um, the High Magister Warlord trait is a very good one because you suddenly get to have the benefit of what Aramon has, where he gets plus one to his psychic casts. Um, you also can give, say, an Exalted Sorcerer, Terminator Sorcerer, Regular Sorcerer, depending on what you have in your list, even your Demon Prince, an extra bonus plus one to their cast. And considering how hard it is to find those bonuses, that's a common one for a lot of people to take. Yeah, which... Uh, again, goes back into sort of the opportunity to cost of making a named character your warlord. Um, and just something to keep in mind. Um, and so Magnus, who is probably even more rarely taken as a warlord than even Aramon, uh, gets in a, has the Lord of Forbidden Lore warlord trait, which lets him know an additional psychic power. Which and with Magnus, uh, man. means he knows four powers, but that's you're giving up a whole lot and the fact that you're making him your warlord actually just paints an even bigger target on his head uh, because most missions yeah. reward you for slaying the warlord. Um, so generally speaking, um, I, and I think David would agree, would not make your named characters, your warlord. Uh, no, there would need to be, reason. there would need to be some kind of specific mission you're playing where that's advantageous for you. Yeah. Um, but, considering the fact that Magnus in most competitive scenarios will die turn one um, against good lists. Um, even yeah, I, I say good lists, I mean more competitive lists, your typical competitive list of what you'll find. Um, he, he will average out as dying turn one, um, especially if you don't go first. Um, not only by making him your warlord, you, like what Mike was saying, in a lot of game formats, um, you even in the normal ones versus some of the competitive ones, uh, like an ITC, uh, they have special missions that you're playing, and almost all the missions you get some kind of bonus for killing the warlord. Yeah. And so by by putting that on a guy or a character that you know is going to get targeted, and and right away in the game. You're just setting yourself up for giving away that point very easily for them. Whereas if all you had was, say, Magnus and Aramon, just in a hypothetical situation, Aramon's the better choice there because he can't be targeted and you've got a three-up in Volm, so he survives a little better. Correct. Um, so going into the rest of them, there are four other Thousand Sons Warlord traits. Um, the first one is Arrogance of Eons. Um, it's actually a fairly good Warlord trait for certain matchups. If you're playing against another Psychic Army, um, it can actually be extremely beneficial. Um, it lets you re-roll, fail, deny the Witch Tests uh, for this Warlord. Not the best, but um, if you know you're going to be taking a lot of Psychic Powers incoming, the ability to more reliably deny some of them could be helpful. Um, so Grey Knights or Eldar would actually be the armies I'd at least give that some thought um, if you're trying to counterplay. Um, the second one is Undying Form. Uh, it reduces all damage suffered by your Warlord. Um, where I would actually use this is actually low points games. If you take this on a Demon Prince, 
your demon prince yeah. will never die. Um, he's just going to run around the table, shrugging off plasma shots and who God knows who, what else. <laughs> and you, effectively, the only way that your opponent is going to be able to drop him is by sheer weight of fire, which isn't going to work very well. And now, at the, at the recording of this in September of 2019, we're in the midst of the early stages of the Psychic Awakening, um, which supposedly is a new set of releases coming out that supposedly give something to everybody. Thousand Sons are in that list coming up. We don't know when that's going to come. Um, but one of the common things I've seen is that Warlord traits for a lot of other factions that have gotten updates this year can now have like a stratagem that lets them take an additional Warlord trait on something. Yeah. And this would be really cool if Thousand Suns get something like that, and in the future, if you're you're listening to this, um, kind of trying to catch up, and that stuff is already out, you have the ability to say, "Give Magnus a Warlord trait." I'm just thinking ahead that the next one, Undying Form, where you reduce the damage by one, like you said, on Magnus, that's that would be huge. Like yeah. if you could just say, "Hey, I'm going to just on top of him just being a." due to my army i'm going to make him a like a hero of my army or something like that and he gets that yeah though another one i would consider for him or even a regular demon prince is the oh, next yeah. one ether stride which is really cool um it lets your warlord advance and charge and you can reroll failed charge rolls effectively it just means that you're that much faster um and you can more reliably charge in so even if you deep strike that's a very much much better off than I guess without and replay goes with a much more aggressive play style. I, I wouldn't take that one on a normal HQ, most because you don't generally want them in close combat unless you're some sort of madman. <laughs> and then you have the um we talked about the Forbidden Lore one, uh which yep. is what Magnus's default is. And I think the last one that we haven't touched on is otherworldly presence. Um well yeah, I mean, we have actually talked about yeah, that because that's what Aramon has. That's what Aramon has. And then we have the Crown Jewel of the Crown Jewel Lord Jades. Uh, High Magister, which uh, if you want to, I guess, be hyper-competitive is, is really what you should take, and here's why. So it adds one to psychic tests. What that means is that it actually it gives you a, like, 30% increase on averages to get a power off just because of the way that the math works out. Uh, as you get to higher and higher uh, points, like um, difficulties to cast, it starts getting a little bit. So diminish, I guess is even more effective. And generally speaking, you should really always take this. If you're going into a format where, you can't sort of cherry pick your warlord trait. This is the one that doesn't require any, any interaction with your opponent. You will get the good results every single time. And as much as I hate to say, take this one, it's the best. Really, for Thousand Suns, taking High Magister is the best option. And um, it's really kind of what you were saying is it works in every situation. Correct. Right? No matter what your opponent is you get some benefit out of this trait and it's a good benefit. Yeah. Cause uh, arrogance of eons, if they don't have any psychers, well, that's wasted. If undying form, if they just brought shooter boys, well, that's going to be wasted. Ether stride. 
well, what if you don't want to get in close combat with this particular army? It's just, uh, unfortunately, the other five, they're aren't always applicable, but High Magister, you will always find a use for it. Um, and this is sort of the one of those things if you're trying to optimize your list is to take the choice that will give you the best results the majority of the time. And that's yeah. sort of the reason why that one is the, the crown jewel of the traits. And it's kind of unfortunate the situation we're in right now being an early codex because this list of warlord traits probably gives every other book that's out there a good run for its money. These are they're all really good. Mm -hmm. It's just the situation we have is we we never really can take more than one. And so you're almost relegated to always taking the one trait that's useful in every situation. Correct. And this is the, the state of things at the moment. Hopefully with the Psychic Awakening, we'll get some new stuff and yeah. maybe um, extra like special detachment or something. That'd be kind of fun. Um, but here in the now, we don't have that option yet. Correct. We do not so have, we have to that talk yet. about what we can do right now. Right? Correct. Okay. So um, after you've picked your water trait, we actually would um, pick Psychic Powers. But for some reason, they put stratagems before that in the codex. So we're going to go into that next for reasons. So some things that you could con would consider uh, whenever you're in sort of that you've going to play a game, you have your list, you're about to deploy, you've picked your warlord trait. Now you need to start uh, picking things like uh, relics and psychic powers. There are a couple of stratagems that you can use before the game starts to give you some additional benefits. And as uh, just a quick uh, injunction here, um, if you followed our first episode, you will have followed what Mike's advice was, which is if you're designing your army, you pick a few key stratagems that are here and you design the army around those stratagems. Correct. So at, before we've even started the game, you've, you should have a list of the things that you know you're going to want to use, be it cycle of slaughter or mm -hmm. let's say line breaker bombardment you brought three vindicators you know things like that you've already got in the back of your mind like i know i'm going to use these these are core to my strategy but yep. where we're going here is what do we do at the start of the game here before like the game even begins yeah some things that you might not do every time um so for instance the first sort of important uh stratagem here is relics of the thousand sons um, every codex has a stratagem like this, though they're all called different things. They cost either one oh, command point or three command points. If you spend one, you get an extra relic, um, which Thousand Suns relics are actually all pretty good. Um, three command points gets you two. Um, I wouldn't necessarily consider the 3.1 unless you, again, you like, I need these three relics because you get the one for yeah. free. The value drop off there is, is huge, huge from the one to three. Yeah. Yep. Um, the next one that you might consider um, is webway infiltration. So this is actually a very important uh, stratagem pre-game for Thousand Suns. A, a, a number of different strategies rely on this stratagem. Um, it follows the same sort of formula as the relic stratagem. This lets you deep strike a unit of Thousand Suns infantry for one command point or two units of Thousand Suns infantry for three command points. 
an important thing to note about this stratagem is that it's one point for a unit. So really, if you're wanting to maximize the benefit of this stratagem, you want to deep strike as, a, as many models as possible with the stratagem. Um, usually this takes the form of like 30 Zengors, but I've seen some crazy people that are like, I'm going to deep strike 25 Rubric Marines. And yeah, you know what? That can work. Um, those, on what you're up against. Those folks have style. That's what those I'll say. Folks do have style. Um, the important limitation here is that whenever your guys come down on turn two, because even though the stratagem says at the end of any of your turns, um, the in matched play, which is what most of you, I assume, play, um, though I shouldn't assume, you can only, there are limitations on deep striking uh, or coming out of reserves, really, so that you can only do it uh, turn two and three. Um, right. And after turn four, at the beginning of turn four, if anything that's in reserve is counted as being dead. Evidently, if they're that lazy, they just don't show up all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so units that you should earmark for this, of course, are the big 30, well, the Zingor blobs, um, because, well, they can cross the table without getting shot to death. Yeah. Um, or uh, situationally, uh, you could put rubrics in uh, reserve for your um, segment terminators uh, already have an ability to listen to this so you, they don't need to worry about this. Sometimes you might consider your characters yeah. um, that are on discs because if they're on disc, they lose the infantry keyword. You could also potentially deep strike an exalted sorcerer as well with yes. this because they are infantry. And so you can bring them along to give a reroll one to whatever unit so like if you are doing the rubric marines you might as well invest in that just so that whatever's going with them has a way to buff them and give them an aura of some kind to shoot when they come down correct um the key on this though is just what you're saying mike that since you're limited on the units in most scenarios what folks do is they they put two blobs of zangors in there there's a lot of value in just putting one blob in there because um, a blob is Angor's 200, 250 points or so, depending on how many you're bringing. Um, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of your army right there rolled up into one unit. So um, for one CP, being able to just put them anywhere you want on the battlefield is very, very good value. Putting two of them really kind of puts your opponents on, his, on its heels. And we'll probably get into a little bit some of the things that might make you say, okay, I'll leave one unit on the board later on when we talk about some of the relics and things you can do there. Um, yeah. Another one that I think is definitely uh, worth talking about uh, early game, Coruscating Beam. And I think this is one of those ones, actually Coruscating Beam and there's another stratagem. And I kind of want to try and steer you away from these. Um, and Mike, you might correct me on this, but Coruscating Beam here in the beginning, it looks really good because you're doing mortal wounds to stuff, but it costs three CP. And the likelihood, and on top of that, you have to roll a four up. And then it's actually, I think if it's a character, um, it's, a five up. it's a five up, right? So those are not very good ops. So only 50-50 for you to hit stuff. Um, I know some of the other codexes have similar things, um, but I think in those cases, they actually have a little bit of a better chance. Um, I might be wrong, but uh, the... Um, not quite. So the th big thing here is that the other codex is it's a... Uh, you pick a point, and then everything within six inches of that point uh, gets hit. 
Whereas yeah. this, you pick two points nine inches apart and it's draw a line, one. and any unit that gets t- is under the line uh, has a chance to get hit. Yeah. Which, situationally, this actually could be a useful stratagem, but uh, I've never been in a position where I was like, oh, yeah, I should coruscating beam here. The, the thing I look at is how expensive the strat is to, to use mm-hmm. and how little output you'll actually get for three CP. I think the value becomes a lot better if it's two or one CP to pull something like that off because it's once per game. And the real tough thing is if you're fighting something like, say, Dark Eldar or uh, Gene Stealers, they can just say, nope, sorry, bro, you know, and they vec that. And right away, they'll do that. In fact, in one of my games against Matthew Ali, that's what he did um, at the tournament. I went to to beam his army, and he just said, nope, sorry, bro. Going to say big nope to that. Um, The other other thing I was going to mention, Inferno Boats can be very tempting. Um, It's one CP. You go to use it on um, one of your vehicles, and you upgrade the um, combi bolter, the combi melta, like any of the combi weapons, um, the heavy bolter, and then the twin heavy bolter uh, basically makes it AP minus two instead of whatever the current AP profile is on it. Here's the problem with this. It only is for each individual weapon. It does not upgrade all weapons of that type. On there. So, for example, your Rhino, which might have like <laughs> two combi bolters on there, you might be thinking, geez, that's great because that's eight shots if I'm inside rapid fire range. Well, no, because you have to spend two CP. You have to spend one for each of those bolters for that to work. Um, the only place I have found where this becomes even remotely a consideration is if you have a twin heavy bolter on, say, a Hellbrute. And on a Hellbrute, it works great because he has that nifty little built-in, you know, trigger ability where you you poke him and he shoots at you or ch- fights you uh, on a six-up. So I think those are two of the ones to really just kind of stay away from. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Inferno Bolts is just not a good option at the moment. Um, actually, there is a situation where I would consider Coruscating Beam. Um, and that is only if your opponent is bunk- it's effectively castled up. Everything is very close to each other, and you can pit almost everything in his army with it. Um, but like I said, I've never actually been in a position where I could do that. Um, most people spread out just enough that it's not necessarily worth it. Yeah, you def- you technically look at the board, and you know the the amount of stuff you can hit with just between two points and nine inches between those two points, and on top of the fact that you're your dude has to be able to see it. Um, and on top of the fact that your warlord has to be a thousand suns model, you know, it, it yeah. can't be like if you're running zinch demons with this and for example, you make one of the zinch demons, your warlord. Well, this is out of the bag for you. Yeah. You can't do it. So. And if we're just adding ands onto this, your warlord <laughs> cannot have moved that turn. That true. That too. So it's a whole lot Even of like qualifiers that just, at least for me, it just takes the value down where you're already limited on the amount of command points you're going to have in most situations, like two battalions. So you're talking about 13 command points. And if you've probably uh, put something into the webway, now that just starts ticking away and you're quickly down to just a handful of command points before you know it. So, so again, uh, a stick webway infiltration is great. The relic uh, one is good. The other two, I, I wouldn't really, bother with unless she's like i really want ap2 whatever type of bolt weapon 
Yeah. Very, very situational. Yep. All right. So, so now um, what can you buy with your fancy relic stratagem? Yes. Into the relics of the thousand suns. So the first one is Sears Bane, which is a really cool demon weapon. Uh, I've always liked the demon weapons. They've all been very fluffy. <laughs> this one hates psychers and people who are brave. So what that means is that, so it's a force sword. So it's AP minus three damage D three. Um, it's your user's strength. So usually they'll hey. be strength four. Hey, 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 it could be a power sword. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. Or I was going to say it replaces a force sword or a power sword. Yeah. Um, but, uh, its special ability is the strength of the bear is doubled when targeting enemy psyker units or enemy units that include any models with leadership characteristic nine or higher, which is actually really good um, against certain armies. Um, I believe custodies are army-wide leadership. Yep. Um, Necrons and... Uh, Chaos Knights. Uh, Chaos Knights. Yeah. Um, so this uh, and, hell in a lot of cases too against <laughs> demons, dark or Eldar, yeah. um, space any marines, characters. any heroes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're in a position where you have a, you're you know you're going to want to be close combat with some of these characters, consider Sears Bane. It'll beat the ever living snot out of pretty much anything that's smart enough to know it shouldn't get close to it. Now, you might be looking at this. There's actually some cool tricks you can do with this thing. Um, and I have to give credit to Matt Ali on this because I think he was one of the first people I saw actually put this to, to work. Um, and that's just my own experience. But here's what you can do. The Exalted Sorcerers right now, um, even though when you look in the Codex and you look at their profile, it doesn't show this option. However, in the digital version of the Codex, you do have the option to take two Power Swords. What this does, um, in effect, is on your Exalted Sorcerer, when you take two Power Swords, it upgrades the base profile of the Exalted Sorcerer to have an additional attack. That additional attack is great because it, it goes to your base profile, not a, hey, this is just one bonus attack that you get with the sword. And the Exalted Sorcerers, I think, have five base attack. Um, if I'm correct, I'm just double checking that right now. Exalted Sorcerer has, sorry, four base attacks. So with two power swords, you're then up to five attacks. And then let's say you charged, you now get a bonus one because of the hateful assault rules that have come out. So on your initial, you're now gonna have six attacks. And let's also consider that we've thrown diabolic strength onto this guy. So we now have an additional attack and plus two strength. The great thing about this is we now have, we're, we're up to six attacks mm -hmm. just on this one guy. He hits on twos, all right? If you throw prescience on him as well, it's not that that doesn't matter, but let's say you're fighting against an Imperium unit like a knight, okay? And a knight has leadership nine. Almost all of them do. Um, you're now doubling your strength against it. So you're easily wounding knights on threes now with this guy. All right, so keep that in mind. 
and throwing prescience on him, you're stacking another bonus, which means with the Seer's Bane, you're now wounding on threes, and on five pluses, you will trigger Death to the False Emperor. Even though you're still only hitting on twos, remember what Mike was explaining with Death of the False Emperor, it's a six plus, which means those modifiers help you explode or generate more attacks. And so you're going to get a bunch of them and you're re-rolling ones. So he's going to hit very, very efficiently against him. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot to help with wounding. However, he is infantry and there is a stratagem uh, since we're still in this section that is called uh, Veterans of the Long War. So for a CP, you can now improve your ability to wound by one. So if you're wounding knights on threes, plus one, now you're wounding on twos. And think about the fact that this thing is AP minus three. Uh, most knights don't have um, an invuln save in close combat. Um, so you have essentially pushed all of that damage onto the stack now. It's D3 damage for each one. You're, he's going to take almost all of it because there's, he's basically saving on sixes from this one little sorcerer just going mad with the Seer's Bane. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really good little thing that just kind of adds up on there um, that's worth talking about that you can you can strategize doing that but you have to you have to look at it from the design of your list and your army and your your loadouts and everything in order to make that work and so if you're going that route I wouldn't necessarily make this your uh, because you get a free relic choice I wouldn't make this your free relic I would make this the kind of one that you spend one point to get that additional relic for or maybe this is one of those situations where you spend three because you know, hey, there is another relic I want, but then I also want to take advantage of this situation. So next is, well, my favorite relic in the Codex, the Dark Matter Crystal. Mostly because it reminds me of my favorite movie as a kid. I think it's all of our favorite relics, actually. Yeah. It's a very so, good one. Um, once per battle, at the end of your movement phase, you can select the bear or a friendly Thousand Suns infantry unit within 12 of him. Remove that model from the battlefield and immediately set it up anywhere on the battlefield that is more than nine inches from any enemy models. This does not count as falling back if the move unit was within one inch of any enemy models. So this is, again, sort of the crown jewel of the relics. So here's why. So one, it's an extra deep strike. You, if you want to use it aggressively, you take your third unit of Zengors or whatever and just plop them across the table. This is what you can do to do it. Um, in addition, it's, I believe it's also exempt from the first one, the, uh, the turn, it first is. turn deep strike rule. So you're yes. allowed to get something in your opponent's face, turn one ASAP, which against a heavily shooting army can be very valuable. Um, because if you manage to lock them in combat, well, they're not shooting at you. But the other thing you can do with it, and it's actually the reason why I like it, and I'm <laughs> using enough, I actually got schooled by my friend's 12-year-old um, when we were playing a, a sort of a demo game for him, is he took the Dark Matter Crystal, and I, I thought he forgot, caught, forgot about it. He didn't use it the entire game, and we're playing, and at the end of the game, he's like, okay, I'm going to pick up this unit of Rubik Marines and put them on your objective over there. It's like, you cheeky little bastard. And you won in the game. Um, so you can use it to strategically move your units where you need them to be at any given time, and also, if you have a unit locked in combat that you need to shoot with, you can use it to pull them out and put them nine inches away, and now they're free to shoot at whatever they need to shoot at. 
just the tactical value of this relic cannot be overstated. Um, and uh, I could just go on with applications for days, but I'm not going this to. This is for sure one of the auto the auto take relics. I think that people that people rock, especially when you have Zangor blobs. Um, so if you have three Zangor blobs, you put two in reserve. You keep one on the table. You hide them so that they don't get shot if you don't go first. And then turn your turn one. Uh, you pop the dark matter crystal and um, send them away to do their do their thing and and put your enemy on their back feet. So, yeah. So the next one is the other used to be the auto take relic, but now I think it's seen some. Uh, effectively, it's no longer as good because of the changes they've made to command point regeneration. Um, the Helm of the Third Eye, um, if your army is battleforged and the wearer is on the battlefield, two important things to note. Um, roll a d6 each time your opponent uses a stratagem on a 5+, plus, you gain one command point. So previously, this was a very, a very powerful relic. Effectively, with most people taking between 12, 13 and about 21 command points, this means you could get two to three extra command points per uh actually no it's more than that uh four and seven command points per arm uh, per game for free for taking just this one relic um however they've changed the way the command point regeneration works and now you're restricted to one command point regenerated per battle round which means that with most armies dumping all their command points by around turn three it'll only ever get back three command points on averages per game. Well, they actually, cut. not averages, <laughs> just total. So because you have to also put this on something that has to be on the board for this ability to trigger, you're best off, if you're going to take it, put it on something that you're not going to thrust into the enemy, enemy's forces like demon princes. Um, this is better on like your sorcerers and stuff like that that are sitting in the backfield. So... Yeah. There's also the core skater, which is the next one. Um, it's, eh, it's basically a three-shot infernal bolter with D3 damage. It's on paper, it doesn't look all that bad, but when you talk about relics, it's bad. And here's why it's bad: the relics are meant to be something that, in most cases, either support your army or make a large impact on what your army does. And this is just something that is improving just basically three shots at, at a very close range. Whereas let's just take, for example, what your other options are that don't cost anywhere near as much. Um, like I don't have to spend any CP for that matter to take a, an infernal bolter. Um, which, or sorry, not Infernal Bolter, an Infernal Warp Flame Pistol, um, which I butchered the name of. Uh, but you can, the Warp Flame Pistols basically earn their value back left and right. And the reason is they automatically hit, so it doesn't matter what you're shooting at. You get D6 shots out of it, um, which you're, with that you're going to average about three shots. Um, and then on top of that, they're AP2, and you get only one damage out of it, but you don't have to you don't have to roll a hit and in most cases you really you have better options here right i mean this is one of those cases where could you find a use for this thing yeah maybe but 
in most cases, things like the dark matter crystal work good in every situation, right? You can, you can use movement in every situation, even helm of the third eye. Every army has stratagems, which means that works in every situation as well. Maybe not as good as the dark matter crystal, but it's just one of those things where you're kind of in the hierarchy of things. It's, it, it's just not something that ever really is going to be that worthwhile taking. Yeah. So then the next relic, which I actually, I, I don't even remember what this thing does. Um, the Athenian scrolls. Uh, if you roll a double and making a successful psychic test for the bearer, your opponent cannot attempt to resist that psychic power with a deny the witch test or negate it by any means. Note that the Psyker will suffer, still suffer perils of the warp on a roll of double one or double six, and if slain by the perils, the power they are trying to manifest will still automatically fail. So this relic is actually kind of worse than the Kuroskater. Because um, at least the Kuroskater, you can use it to kill people. Um, so, all right. So the odds of getting doubles on any given dice roll of 2d6 is 1 and 6. The odds of getting doubles that also successfully casts a power is closer to 1 and 12. And then there's the fact that if you do well, one of those results also damages you. Uh, effectively, it's just the odds of this working out in your favor are so abysmally low that it's it's just a crapshoot. I, I, it's cool. Um, I, I think I, I like what they were going for here, but it's just not a good relic, um, considering that you have other stellar options to take. Seer's Bane, Dark Matter Crystal, Helm of the Third Eye. Even the Curiscator or Prismatic Staff are... <laughs> kind of better than this and, and the prismatic staff coming up next i mean it's almost like you can just like cover up that right side of the the artifact page and or the <laughs> the relic page and just get hey, just ignore those those, those just don't hey, worry about actually that. don't talk shit about the prismatic staff it actually is good in one very sort of niche use well we're gonna get into that then because i think it's garbage and you know what it, it, it's not great. Sears Bane <laughs> is better. The other two are obviously better. Okay, so let's say in your your games, you're, you play against a army that you know is going to get in your face. Turn one is going to assault the big Jesus out of you. Let's also assume that you took our advice from the earlier podcast and didn't give any of your guys discs. So... Your guy, your your the guy carrying your prismatic staff gets charged. As long as your opponent doesn't manage to wrap you and take you hostage, the prismatic staff allows you to disengage. So you move your six inches if you're not in Terminator armor. Then you can shoot or warp time to get even farther away. And then if there's another weaker unit that's even farther away, you can charge that unit to run away as fast as you can. Like I said, Meh. very niche un- use. So here's the problem with that. It, if you're in a situation where your dude that would have this gets charged, you've probably done messed up pretty bad. 
and that your guys probably shouldn't be getting charged. Um, or something else has happened in the game that is very, very bad. Um, where I could see this potentially, Mike, if I'm, if I'm trying to look at it from your perspective here, let's say I'm doing that thing where I'm dropping in a bunch of rubrics and my sorcerer there to help them out, or maybe a blob of Zangors and the sorcerer. And the Zangors just get wiped out. The sorcerer's there. He gets charged by whatever was left over there. Um, I can see that being something where, okay, now he can fall back. But again, I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, he can fall back and shoot and then charge. And yeah, maybe he gets a little bit of output from it, but I don't think it's anything that, again, rivals the Dark Meta Crystal or Helm or anything, hey, basically, on we, the left can side. Can we at least agree that it's better than the Athenian Scrolls? Yeah. Yes, I, I'll give you that. <laughs> I mean... The Athenian scrolls would be much better if it was like, hey, if you roll doubles, it, it no matter what the doubles are, it automatically succeeds and it doesn't count as perils and um, it can't be countered. Like yeah. the, the I, odds I mean, are so low that that's what it ought to do. But I, I mean, if it did, was just a anytime you roll doubles and the power goes off automatically, yeah, I'd take that because I mean, the, you're casting two powers a turn. You on average is get two uses of it per game, but. Yeah. With the way that it currently works, you're lucky to get one, and one of those one might kill you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, it's there to try and prevent stuff like El like for your Eldar matchups, right? Where Eldar yeah. can try to deny your stuff, and they all can also reroll some of their psychic, some of their denials against you. Um, that works really good against that because if you happen to roll doubles they can't do anything about it. The problem, as Mike pointed out, is it's a very, very low probability uh, battle that you're fighting there. So it, it might be something that might not be all that great. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that that's wraps up a relic. So our takeaway here, Sears Bane, it's fun. Dark Matter Crystal, fantastic. Helmet Third Eye is okay. And the other three, uh, uh, I mean, if you could take, you can take it as like a labor of love, but I just, I would steer away from them uh, myself. Yeah. Like if you're unsure and you haven't played Thousand Suns at all, probably why you're listening to this, um, just take the Dark Matter Crystal. Like just I mean, take it until you figure out, hey, you know what? I have a situation where I remember to take the Coruscator or the, the um, Seer's Bane or the um, Helm of the Third Eye. Like even spending a command point to take the helm of the third eye isn't all that good unless you're going against something like guard and they've got 5 million command points. So I like to think that they're listening to, to hear the sounds of my sultry, beautiful voice, but um, well, it is, maybe it is very sultry. I know. Right. Okay. Now the fun part, <laughs> getting away from that very quickly. <laughs> hey, clearly you should take it the prismatic staff. You'd already be gone. Psychic powers. Yep, psychic powers. <laughs> All right. So we've gone over this before, but um, I guess we can retread this ground because it's actually probably one of the more difficult choices to make um, for Thousand Sons because there are so many options. So Thousand Sons get access to three different trees for their psychic powers. The Discipline of Change is the, well... The Thousand Sons. Thousand discipline. Sons discipline. Um, effectively, this is our special juju. Uh, then there's the Dark Hereticus, which Thousand Sons share with the other Chaos armies. Um, there's actually a, a lot of solid powers here, um, and I think it's actually the 
of the three is probably the most solid because of the support that it provides. And then there's the Discipline of Zinch, which is the Chaos Demons, um, well, Zinch Demons uh, tree, which uh, only Demon Princes and Magnus can take and they share with the Chaos Demons Codex. So, so there's a lot here for us to cover. And yeah. I, it would be really tempting to dive into every single one of these powers. And we would probably be done in about an hour of going through every single one and all the situations <laughs> that would work. Um, I just want to make the point that this is the quintessential core of the army. All right. This is what makes everything work with Thousand Sons. We have a lot of other stuff. I get it. But the core of how you play Thousand Sons is right here on these two pages. The reason I say that is that there's a lot of people I think that start Thousand Sons and the way they play it is they pre-pick all their powers on everything as if there's always an optimal choice to take for every situation that it'll always be the same. And I think that's perfectly fine if you just don't know all the powers yet. The best thing you can do is work to memorize these powers and use them as often as you can. Like every game you should be thinking about what powers would work really good in this game because it's one of the only things that an army has to tailor for the matchup that they have. Because in every situation, psychic powers don't have to be chosen until the very beginning of the match. Yep. So I always, I always look at that like, if you really want to play this army right, if you're just trying to figure out how to play it first, it's perfectly fine to just pre-pick your powers. But I think you're better off, even though it might take you more time and you'll play slower, that's okay. Choose your powers at the very beginning of the game. And the reason you do that is because you learn a couple things. One is you learn what's good against the other opponents. So you, you start to learn, okay, I took these powers against this guard army and maybe I should have taken this other set of, set of powers here. The second thing you learn is what powers each unit can take. So for example, demon princes have access to all three. Aramon and the Sorcerers have access to just Discipline of Change and Dark Hereticus. And your Zangors and Rubric Marines and um, Scarab Occult Sorcerers have only access to the Thousand Suns one or the Discipline of Change. So that controls what you can do in the game. And it could be one of those things where, hey, you show up with no Demon Princes and you realize, you know what? This would be really helpful right now, and I'd rather not have to use the stratagem in mid-game to spend command points to go get a power that I need, and I can only do that once per game, or once per turn, um, meaning I have to dump command points each, each time I need to change that. So, But it also helps when um, that, that stratagem is really good. I think it's um, uh, the Sorceress Pact. I think, um, or is it the, um, oh no, it's the Chaos Familiar one. Uh, and the, and the uh, Chaos Familiar strat basically lets you pick one from any of the three, which means even if you pick a Sorcerer or Aramon or something like that, you can pick from the Discipline of each tree because the stratagem allows you to do that. And that's, that's how you're able to put those powers onto those guys. Yeah. So... So it's really about here identifying your key matchups um, and knowing what situations are really good. Um, I guess there are probably a couple powers worth calling out. 
um, I think Death Hex is probably the the biggest one. Um, and the reason Death Hex is so good is because it just completely nullifies some armies and what they do. Um, a, a couple really good examples off the top of my head. One is against Chaos Knights or uh, any knights, basically. Um, they have a five up in Rome. It can go to a four up if they rotate their shields. You can just completely negate it. Um, another one that's really good is against things like Smash Captains or anything with Storm Shields. Um, I'm specifically thinking about matchups against, um, uh, what's, well, God, I can't believe I can't think of their name. Um, Death X is very important versus Death Watch. Um, that's who it was. Yes. Yeah. Even Um, better. Some some Eldar builds. Even better. Um, the, uh, the most durable infantry or the most durable unit basically in the game point for point is the demon, uh, the Nurgle Demon uh, Plague Bearers. Um, they have a five-up Imbolm save, and then on top of that, they have a five-up Field No Pain. And I have seen armies dump millions of bullets into a squad of Plague Bearers, which can also be minus two to hit sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and just only kill maybe five. The, like, their whole army just dumps all their shooting into it, uh, and they only kill maybe, like, five or six guys and they laugh at them while they roll a one on their morale and they get back up um death hex is one of the key ways to beat play bears because you take away their first i mean you vastly drop their ability to survive though and um also it's very potent versus um, dark eldar um when they're running homunculus covens because they all have a four up and save across the board plus feel no pain yeah just easily the one of the most important powers they're not always a good pick depending on what you're up against which is sort of the story here yeah um so i, I guess the other powers that you really need to keep i guess are almost auto includes if you're taking thousand suns uh, there are a couple that are just very useful uh glamour of zinch and weaver of fates off the discipline of change are very important powers, um, particularly for Zengors, because they, you need them to keep them alive. Um, so Glamour of Zinch uh, is Warp Charge 7, um, and has a range of 12 inches, though with Thousand Suns, you actually have a range of 18, um, just uh, keeping that in mind. Um, until the start of your next Psychic Phase, your opponent must subtract one from any hit rolls that uh, they make versus uh, models in that unit. So that's a effectively a 17% swing towards the survivability of your unit. Um, it also um, can lock out certain special abilities that trigger on like six ups, uh, for instance. Um, the other one, Weaver of Fates, effectively does uh, something very similar. It increases the invulnerable save of the unit by one to a maximum of three. And if the unit does not have an invulnerable save, it gives them a five of invulnerable save. Um, this, of course, has a... 24 inch range with a thousand suns bonus and as a warp charge uh, value of six. So again, you put this on your Zengors. Now they have a four up invuln save. Again, it's a 17% increase in their survivability, which um, when come out of glamour change means that your goat boys have gone from being a fairly squishy infantry unit to being actually like rock solid in terms of how hard it is to remove them from the table. Yeah. Um, Another thing that can kind of help you, there's a couple tricks here. So a lot of, there's a bunch of powers that allow you to target stuff. Um, One of the things I want to point out that a lot of people kind of don't realize is that 
targeting of characters only applies to the shooting phase. And in the psychic phase, you can target, when it says pick a, pick a unit, you can target a, a character, even if it's not the closest unit to you. Um, so things like Zinch's Firestorm out of the change discipline, Doombolt also in the change displays, discipline, Infernal Gaze, um, you also have Bolt of Change. These are really, really good powers, and here's why. You can essentially stack a whole bunch of targeted psychic powers on something and just watch them burn. Um, you know, you've got to, even if you have, it doesn't even need to be a character. It can be something like maybe a squad of Dark Reapers. Um, I've had that situation happen where my opponent didn't know that I had all those psychic powers that could target his unit. And my guys got in range and away, you know, away they went and <laughs> the Dark Reapers just disappeared from the, from the battlefield. And if you've ever played um, against Dark Reapers, they can be very, very nasty against you. Maybe not quite as bad as they were in early parts of 8th edition uh, under Yanari, but um, it can be really good uh, to be able to just target a unit that's there. You do need, they do need to be visible for all the powers. So you can, these are a couple uh, memorization helpers uh, to make it easy to remember stuff. So first of all, all of them have to target a visible unit. So we have no power um, that has to target a non-visible enemy unit, okay? Unlike Eldar, Eldar can just target anything. The other thing is with Thousand Suns, if they're your caster, all of the offensive powers, ones that are targeting enemy units to deal damage to them, except for Infernal Gateway, it's the only exception, um, they all have a range of 24 inches. All right, so on the book, they have 18 for the power, which are, with our bonus pushes it to 24. And so that makes it very easy for you to just know what your range is that you need to be if you're going to target them with Infernal Gaze, Firestorm, Doombolt, etc. The other thing to remember is that um, they, there's almost nothing really that has that good of a save against Mortal Wounds in the Psychic Phase. They've Since Custodies have come out, a lot of stuff has started to get Feel No Pains and... Um, um, you know, defense against mortal wounds. Uh, but for the most part, most characters don't have that. But again, this just reiterates the tailoring of your powers to your opponent. And one of the things you can just kind of easily walk through with your opponent is, hey, do you have anything that, you know, lets you save against mortal wounds or prevent mortal wound damage or things like that? Um, and that up front just makes it real easy for you to know, okay, you know what? I think I'll take a bunch of these powers and go after his characters. And you'd be amazed at how easy it is to just watch an army crumble when you take those characters out. Yeah. Um, but they also let you target things like, um, basically the other thing is smite is kind of one of the main damage components of thousand suns. I think most people associate smite with thousand suns that that's their main weapon. Um, and they'd probably be right in a lot of cases. That's one of their big, you don't have an increasing difficulty with them. But Smite has to target the nearest visible unit. So when your opponent has two units and one's in the way, but one that has like one damage is back behind it, these powers become really helpful for you to 
knock off that unit and then just smite use smites to go after the one that you knew you were going to hit already. Yeah. So aside from that, I don't know what else. Um, the, the only other suggestion I have actually um, thinking about that is if you go to the thousand sun subreddit, there is a, um, there is a helper uh, document that I created uh, I think it's a Google document, um, but it's, I think it's shared possibly as a PDF. Uh, but if you search the Reddit page for um, cheat sheet, you will find um, the, the sheet that I have. And essentially what it is, is it doesn't give you all the rules for the psychic power. What it gives you is a easy reminder, a short like 10 character reminder of what the power does and what it has to target. And it gives you the casting value and it, and it uh, gives you the tree that it's in. And then what it also does is at the bottom, it has a kind of like a table or a grid um, that's, that's set up for you to be able to write down what powers you have on what guys. This is one of the hardest things with the army is the bookkeeping for, you know, 10 psychers in your army and what powers they have. I, I built this cheat sheet out of my own kind of tools or my need for tools of finding a way to make this easier for myself. And the way this is intended to be used is you print it up, you take it to like, I don't know, a FedEx Kinko's or a little, a place locally that can do laminating. You have them laminate this it only costs a dollar or so. And then you buy some dry erase markers and you use the dry erase markers to write everything down. And then you just wipe the, you wipe the slate clean. Like if you go to a tournament, for example, you might play three games in one day. Um, you can just basically wipe the slate clean between each game and you're good to go. You just start over again and you just write your, write your dudes down. And you can even just jot notes down next to him. Like he has this relic or this is my, you know, I've given them a warlord trade or this is this warlord trade or what, you know, whatever you want to do is just a reminder on there. Um, and it helps out a lot. Um, and it, sometimes I've found that it can harden on there, but you can just use a little alcohol and just kind of wipe the, wipe everything clean doing that. But that kind of helps out a little bit. So where are we going next, Mike? Well, the, um, it's all the sort of pregame stuff for the army um the last thing i guess we can sort of approach is how to deploy so in earlier editions and it even carries over to certain matches in the, the current edition the game is either won or lost in deployment um, effectively what that means is that if you deploy well you're in a position to do constructive things early on in the game. And effectively what that means is that if you have a good first turn, um, your odds of having a good second turn uh, will go up that much higher. Um, good doesn't necessarily mean, oh yes, I wiped out half of my opponent's army turn one, um, which is something that some armies can conceivably do. But could mean that, okay, well, I got into position to like take objectives, score points, and but didn't lose a considerable amount of my army at the same time. And so the one, first thing to keep in mind is before you go into a game, try to figure out one, how, I guess, what type of mission you're doing. 
um, how will the uh, decision for who goes first be made? Will it be a roll-off at the beginning of the game where, okay, well, I deploy first, so I most likely go first? Or will it be a, okay, we alternate, and then whoever finishes first gets a bonus? If it's a, if you know you're going first, so for instance, um, you or you're doing the alternation and you know that, okay, I have 11 drops and they have 12, that means that regardless of who makes the first drop, you will be going before they will. And, or if it's a one of the missions where, okay, we roll a dice and whoever deploys first go first, you know, if you're deploying first, or, and this is important because this happened to me a lot, if your opponent ignores cover, um, unless you can get your guys completely out of line of sight uh, against that, um, there's no reason to deploy in cover because uh, it just slows down your movement. Um, so if you're deploying, if you're going first, deploy aggressively. Uh, deploy in a position where turn one you can get as much distance to do whatever it is you want to do, whether you want to get in range to shoot, whether you want to take an objective. But um, nothing will hurt you more than the worry that okay i'm going to be in a position where i'm going if if they steal the initiative i'm going to lose half the army yes that can happen and it really sucks but the thing is you have to sort of plan around the most likely outcome and if you completely sort of nerf your own ability to act uh, in a constructive manner in the early in the first turn of the game, then it did it really matter that you went first? And in fact, you've now allowed your opponent to um, be in better range or uh, counter deploy against your army if you did go first in that method. Um, so set yourself up for success. Um, the other thing, though, is if you're going second and your opponent doesn't ignore cover. Um, Deploy so that your opponent, even if they have the nastiest Alpha Strike army in the game, can't destroy your critical units. So keep your characters out of line of sight. Keep your squishier units that you, like uh, if you have a blob of Zengors on the table, make sure you put them out of line of sight if possible. So that way your opponent can't just delete them before you have the chance to Dark Matter Crystal them. And again, set yourself up for success in such a way that now you've survived the first round of shooting, it, you can go into your first turn in a way that you can, again, can be constructive towards making good progress in the game. Um, a good decision you might have to make is, do you want to use prepared positions? Um, which is a lovely new stratagem that Games Workshop was happy to bequeath upon us um, in order to sort of blunt the ability for a Alpha Strike army to just delete you before the game begins. Uh, effectively, what this does is if a non-Titanic, non-Flyer unit um, is shot at, they count as being in cover the first turn of the game if you're going second. Um, it's two command points, and a lot of the time it's, it's well worth it because, for instance, versus small arms, um, our rubric marines now have a, the equivalent of a one-up save. Um, yeah. Even against heavy weapons, they still had the benefit of a two-up save before modifiers. And that goes a long ways towards allowing your guys to survive. 
Yeah. So yeah. half of this battle is knowing what you what you want to do, meaning you can protect those assets on the board, like Zangors. If you know you want to dark matter dark matter crystal your Zangors over to your opponent, turn one. Um, you definitely want to be thinking about the fact, even if you even if you are looking at if. if all right, sorry, scatterbrained here for a second, but let me clarify. Let's say you're in a situation where you're alternating deployments and the person who finishes deploying first is going to get plus one to go first. It doesn't mean, even if you see the likelihood that you're going to get that plus one, it doesn't mean that you should set up to, to without protecting what you have because you have to remember that it's going to come down to a dice roll. There's other situations where whoever de finishes deploying first just gets to choose whether they go first or not. Um, and in those situations, it's much different. Um, or it's determined, I think, by a dice roll at the beginning, sorry. Yeah. So what Mike is getting to is the first half of it is knowing what you want to do and whether it's safe for you to deploy in a way that you know for a fact you'll be able to go first no matter what versus the other 50% of that, which is knowing what your opponent can do. Um, because a lot of times what it comes down to is you, you know what you want to do, but you have no idea what you're playing against. So you're just going to, you're going to go with what you do and hope for the best. And that sometimes is all you can do. Like if you're playing an army for the first time and you have no idea what they do, it's okay. Don't fret. It just, you have to figure it out as you go. Even if someone sits there and explains the rules to you, the chances of you remembering all those things and the interactions that they have, it's very low likelihood. So you just go with it. You just, you know, play it out, take it as a learning, uh, learning chance. You still have a good chance of just doing what you want to do. And if you can't do it, then you learn from that. Um, so, you know, things to look out for guard with their mortars are very bad for your Zangors. So even with the, um, prepared positions, it's not going to do much for your Zangors because they have a five up invuln save and the prepared positions doesn't affect your invuln save. So with a six up armor save that Zangors have, it just isn't going to do anything for you. So hiding them is the best thing you can do. So the only thing they can shoot you with are the mortars, but good players are going to know that those are, those are coming at them as fast as possible. And so they're going to shoot them. The, knowing the, the things that your opponent is going to shoot, um, helps you protect those uh, those units on the board. So hiding them in terrain, which brings me to another point in that if you are not playing with an adequate amount of terrain and light of sight blocking terrain, um, you are playing to a disadvantage, mm -hmm. regardless of whether you're playing a shooting army or a an assault army. I mean, it definitely helps the assault army, but one of the things that GW harps on time and time again is that to help the balance of the game, you should be adding more terrain. But yeah, um, again, knowledge is power. Know what your opponent wants to do. Know what you want it to go in with a plan. And um, really just after that deployment's done, it's, it's just, well, pray to the changer of ways that the uh, he does not betray you today because it comes down to the dice after a certain point. That's true. Sometimes they just fail you. Also, remember, if you're in Space Wolves, there's a special stratagem just for them uh, that I've never seen used. But if you're prepared, I have used now it. that you know. Oh, have you? I have used it, yes. I played uh, John Cook at uh, War, War, no, uh, Warzone Houston, mm -hmm. and, uh, which was uh, evidently a bad event for me. 
uh, result wise, but he was running Space Wolves. I had Thousand Suns and Rubric Marines, and I did get a chance to use it. And even though his Wolfen got to me turn one, uh, and pretty much proceeded to just steamroll me, um, I I did tell him mid game. I said, you know what, this is a win for me because I get to use that stratagem, and I never get to use that stratagem. Yeah, and, uh, I would like uh, it to was point good out. fun. If you combine that stratagem with a Zengor Shaman and Prescience, your Zengors will, on every single hit, generate a uh, bonus attack. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes, I want to see this someday. Get on that. Actually, wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold on, hold on. I got carried away there. Zengors don't have Deaths of False Emperor. Oh, don't, do they not? No. But, but, but why? And, and ladies and gentlemen, this is the man telling you how to play Thousand Suns. Yeah, I'm terribly sorry. I <laughs> it's okay. I at one point thought they did too. And I think huh. they should. But yeah. unfortunately, they do not have Death of the Pulse Emperor. So it works, it works great on your Rubric Marines. It works great it's on Magnus. Cult, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, it's amazing on Magnus because it just pretty much is just like, no. But you can just pick this unit up. Whatever it is. Just pick them up. Alright, well, I think that about wraps it up. Um, are we missing anything? Of course we are. Oh? What are you missing? Magnus did nothing wrong. Oh, right. Magnus did nothing wrong. <laughs>